possible, I am not going to have a seat because um, I've got the next two weeks here at Keystone. And during that time, I'll be preaching a, a short two-part series that I've called Uncovered. And I need to be honest, I'm lifting a little bit of this series out of a series that I did over six years ago. This week, I'm beginning my 14th year at Keystone. 14 years, and for eight years, I served as youth pastor. And during those eight years, I had some goals of what I wanted to do with our junior hires and senior hires. And one of them was to create a safe place for kids to be able to be honest about who they are and about the kinds of doubts that they have. And it's a little different than the kind of safe place that you might think of today where our goal was to eliminate all trigger warnings and microaggressions. This was a place where we could be honest and confront things that we might not actually like. And now as lead pastor, some of my thoughts are, are similar in that I want Keystone, not just the youth ministry, but the church as a whole, to be a safe place for people to be honest about who they are, what God's doing in their lives, to be able to feel free to ask questions and share doubts, and that together as a family, we might be able to tell the stories of God's work in our lives, scars and all. This series is, is based on the series I did with the youth that I called Uncovered. All or every scar tells a story was the subtitle. And the, the goal of that quick little series I did with the youth was to encourage the youth to share the stories of what God is doing in their lives. That those stories might be an encouragement to the other kids in the group that God is still at work in his people and the same ways that God did miraculous things in the scriptures and that the scriptures testify in open and vulnerable ways the kinds of things that God has done for us. I, want, I wanted the youth and now I want Keystone to embrace the story that God has for us and be willing to share that, that it might be an encouragement to the whole body, that those who are walking in darkness might hear a story of someone escaping and seeing Jesus provide the light for them to walk the path towards redemption. And I want these stories to be told so that we might as a church might be able to see the glory of God on display. Now, I couldn't do that. I couldn't convince senior hires in my own strength to be vulnerable and to be open and to share. And so we prayed as youth workers that God would do what we could not do. And so I want to begin uh, our time in this series praying a lot like I prayed six years ago, that God would create an environment and a people that are willing to share. And so let me pray one more time before we begin. Lord God, for the last three years, we have looked at the Gospel of Luke and we have called the series The Doctor's Cure. And we have seen your hand as a skilled surgeon and physician to tend to those who are sick and in need of help. And Father, as I look at the congregation here at Keystone, this body that you've assembled, I know that there are parts of the body that are hurting. 
who are wounded and who are still in need of your hope and healing. I pray that as we reflect on your character and your nature that you would supply us with the kind of hope and encouragement we need to bring healing to our wounds. And Lord, I know also that there are people at Keystone for whom you have done great things, that you have transformed the trajectory of their lives. And I ask that you would do the work to complete it, to bring our joy to completion by freeing us to share those stories for your glory and for Keystone's good. Lord, would your spirit work within us today to help us see clearly the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin by addressing just a handful of basic facts that I find about scars. The, the subtitle that I had for this series was Every Scar Tells a Story, and so um, I'm going to give you five quick facts about scars. The first one's this. Some people are proud of their scars, and some people are ashamed of their scars. Some people are proud of their scars. For those of you who have scars that you're in some ways proud of, they're kind of like badges of honor. You might actually tell stories uh, to your buddy. It might be more of a guy thing than anyone else. I'm not sure that all the details of the stories are 100% true, but the stories that guys share about stories and how they got their stories, their scars, is something that they're excited to, to share. I, I find that in my own life, my scars are kind of like bookmarks for me to look back at pivotal moments in my life, uh, moments of great courage and moments of great stupidity. So this past, um, actually, um, maybe March or so, I had a desire to learn how to make pizza. And so what do I do to learn how to make pizza? I go onto YouTube and I find one of the keys is to make your oven blazing hot, like hotter than any furnace known, Daniel 3 fiery furnace type hot. And then you have to mix up the dough and um, stretch it out and toss it around like this. And then the trick, and this is where I don't have the skill, you need to somehow transport the dough from the countertop into the oven. And so you open the blazing hot oven and somehow you need to transport this dough. And so I don't have one of those pizza peels, those things that you slip under and then you slip in. So I had to like sort of just use my hands and shove it into the oven. And it's blazing hot. And just ever so gently, I, I nudged my wrist against the rack uh, in the oven. It, it hurt not at all because I feel like it just burned everything that was there. And so I've got one of these scars here. 2006, with Pastor Charlie and his son, Jeremy Walter, I was riding mountain bike at Lancaster County Park, and I had just gotten new clipless pedals. If those of you who are mountain bikers, you know all the professionals use clipless pedals. You clip in, and then it locks your foot in, so whether you're pulling or pushing, your foot is always locked to the bike. The problem is, is I'm not a professional mountain biker. Uh, and so going probably like 0.2 miles an hour, just turning around, I lose my balance and I'm stuck. And so I'm like trying to jam my foot out of these pedals. Um, luckily, before I tip over, I'm able to free it and I jam my foot down to, to brace myself. Um, but I jammed my foot and ankle down on the sprockets 
uh, and two of those little teeth like just sort of tore right up through my ankle. And so I've got some nice scars there. 2003, 2007, 2008, uh, I had surgery to repair a torn ACL in my left knee. And now the interesting part is that the, the scars from that injury aren't actually from me hurting and tearing my ACL. It's actually from repairing the ACL. And so whatever. I'm, I could go on and on about stories. Stitches from kitchen knives and radiators and cuts and burns from fryers and motorcycles. Some people are proud and will want to talk about scars. Even the most introverted person you might convince to talk about scars. But some people are ashamed. I knew a guy in college. He had the kind of caterpillar, lumpy scars that went around his shoulder and his chest. He was born and the doctors ended up yanking on his arm in some way that caused significant damage and the, the scars that he had are from trying to repair what was broken beforehand. And those scars deformed his shoulder. And he was ashamed. He didn't want anyone to see him. He didn't want anyone to talk about them. And I think that when it comes to some scars, people at Keystone and just everybody are fairly good at covering up scars. Even the most extroverted person probably has something that's off limits that I don't want to talk about. The second thing about scars is that some people actually end up relating to each other on the basis of their scars. I'm like that with my ACL. My Ben Boy and I are, are buddies. We've had the surgery. We both know what it's like to both have the pain of the injury as well as the anxiety about surgery, having the surgery, doing the rehab. And so we're going to be brothers just because we've gone through the same thing. Like this week, I tried to reach out to Clay Thompson, let him know buddy, I, I get it, I understand, like, you can do it next year. And the same thing probably happens with cancer survivors. They actually rally around this new identity that they have. They are a cancer survivor. Some people actually relate to each other on the basis of their scars. Point three, not all scars are physical. What's that lie that we tell our kids? Sticks and stones will break my bones. But words will never hurt me. That's, stop telling your kids that. Well, maybe, but you should give them enough resources so that when the words do come and they cut, that they can stand and face it with courage. Because the truth is, is that maybe some of the worst things that have happened in your life has not been sticks or stones, but words and deeds, typically done by people who were closest to you. Point three, most scars are not physical. Point four, wounds start off, or scars start off as wounds. That's what a scar is, isn't it? Like a scar is some kind of wound that you've had that has healed. And instead of the wound, you now have a scar. And those scars in some ways are reminders of the wounds that have healed. And I'll pause there to say that some of us have wounds that we keep hidden because they're actually still wounds. They're not scars. They haven't healed yet. We're not ready to take the Band-Aid off and uncover it, but I'll say that sometimes the injury is so bad that you need to let somebody see it 
so that it can be taken care of. I'll just make sure that it's probably in a safe, sterile environment. Wounds that are deep, like puncture wounds, they might look fine on the surface, but deep down, if we don't pay attention to them, can fester and grow and get infected and spread. But all scars start off as wounds, and lastly, every scar has a story. There's something going on anytime we talk about scars. And so this morning, we're going to look at a section of scripture in Mark chapter 1 that I'd love for you to turn to. And I want us in this section of scripture to see both the story as well as the deeper story. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. You can follow along up on the screen or in your own scriptures. And a leper came to him, him being Jesus. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, a proof to them. But he, the healed leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in, a desolate, out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. All right, so the story is very simple. You can probably say it in four words. Jesus healed a leper. The only tricky part about this story is making sure that you say leper and not leopard. That'll come in handy once you end up singing Jesus paid it all uh, at some point later in your future. Jesus healed a leper. Now, the scriptures only give us six verses. And so trying to tell the story is, is fairly simple. A leper comes to Jesus. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus has compassion and says, I will be clean. Then the leprosy leaves. Jesus charges the man not to tell anyone. Go tell the priest, but then keep it on the DL. And then the leper goes and tells everyone, and the story goes viral. That's the, the story. It's very brief, but it's just the facts. And what I think separates a good story from an okay story is that the okay story tells the facts. The good story includes the feelings. And what I mean by that is in order for you to feel the story, you need more than just the facts. I'll give you three different storylines and see if you can tell what the, the story is. Story number one, an unassuming villager destroys a powerful ring. What's that story? An unassuming villager destroys a ring, a powerful ring. What's that story? 
That's Lord of the Rings. That's Lord of the Rings. That's a, a three-book uh, series from, from Tolkien, uh, 1,200 pages, uh, three movies, $6 billion. $6 billion were spent to hear about a villager who destroys a powerful ring. Clearly, there's more power in that story because it's longer. It has details. We learn about this man and the journey that he goes on. It's not just somebody going to the theater and paying 15 bucks to hear, ah, let me tell you a story. A villager uh, destroys a powerful ring. And you're like, whoo, that's great. You can keep my 15 bucks. I just heard the best story I've ever heard. No, you have to develop the story to get to the deeper story. Here's the second one. A boy wizard and his friends defeat evil. Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter. Yeah, absolutely. Seven books, eight movies, 3,400 pages, and $25 billion to hear the fact that there's a boy wizard with his friends who defeat evil. Or there's more to that story. Last one, third one. A boy meets a girl. A boy loses the girl. And then the boy gets the girl back. What story is that? That's all stories. That's every story. That's every rom-com story you've ever heard. But the reason that the women aren't just weeping with tears right now is because you don't know the guy and you don't know the girl and you don't know the interplay and the will they, won't they. And so you're not shedding any tears right now because I just told you the fact I didn't get into the deeper story. And so to understand this story in Mark 1, we need to know more than just facts. We need to know the backstory. We need to know what was going on beforehand. What, what was the pivotal moment? Where was the tension? Where was the conflict? What was the resolution? What's different now because of Jesus that wasn't true beforehand? And so let's dig a little deeper. The first question we should ask ourselves, okay, well, what's leprosy? This man is a leper. We don't know his name. In some ways, his name doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus does. And so when Jesus heals a leper, we should know, what's Jesus healing him? Well, in Bible times, leprosy was kind of just a junk drawer category for any type of skin disease. Today, we might identify it or diagnose it as Hansen's disease. It's a bacterial infection that ends up affecting your nervous system. Now, what's interesting about leprosy is that the kind of destruction that leprosy ends up creating isn't actually from the disease itself as much as it is from self-inflicted injuries. This bacteria gets into our nerves, and especially with feet and hands and face, keeps nerves from feeling what's going on. And so imagine me cooking my pizza and I have my hand in the fire and I can't feel pain. I wouldn't know that I was burning myself until I started to smell myself. That's why I, I don't think that saying all pain is necessarily bad. Sometimes pain is letting us know that something's wrong. And so this leper would have slowly but surely lost feeling in parts of his body and would have inflicted damage upon himself not knowing that he was hurting himself and those parts would have gotten infected and would have, the, the picture that you have of a leper is typically, his face is disfigured, he might be blind, he might be missing parts of his appendages. But it's worse than that. Leprosy is worse than just the physical symptoms because you have to imagine what would that have meant for him? If you want to know more about leprosy, you can go back into Leviticus 13 and 14 and read about um, what they declared to be uh, procedure for lepers. Lepers 
well, they defined a, a leprosy as something that was deeper than skin deep. It wasn't just a simple rash. If it was a simple rash, um, you'd be fine. But if it went deeper than skin deep, and I think that's important, if it went deeper than skin deep, they were actually cast out of the camp. They weren't allowed to be in connection with other people in the community because they knew it was contagious and they didn't want it to spread. And so they separated the lepers outside of the camp in fact, if anybody came near to that camp and that leper um, saw them coming, the leper was supposed to announce to everyone, unclean, unclean. And they weren't allowed to worship. And frankly, it was all but a death sentence. And so physically that's bad, but did you pick up on some of the ways that that might affect him socially and emotionally if if he can't even see his family, if he might be able to see them from a distance and they might be piling food for him to come and collect, but he can't work, he can't see his kids, he can't kiss his wife. And so emotionally, how lonely would it have been for this man? And spiritually, you, you have this disease and you see yourself wasting away and you feel like you can't do anything about it. How hopeless do you end up becoming when you realize that you can't do anything to solve your biggest problem? Wondering if there's a God in heaven, why he would first of all give you leprosy. Maybe you're racking yourself with guilt trying to figure out what have I done wrong? How have I sinned against God? Why is he punishing? What have I done that God would curse me like this? Or maybe I've heard people say in the past that anyone with leprosy is possessed by a demon. And so am I possessed by a demon? I don't know how bad things need to be before you utterly give up on life. But I would guess that if we saw someone with leprosy, it would be horrific. The kind of desperation and despair that we might see in a leper is tough to really wrap our hands around. In some ways, it's kind of like a stage four cancer diagnosis, but worse. And coupled with maybe a 1980s AIDS diagnosis, where not only is it in some ways a death sentence, but there's a stigma that goes around it that what kind of evil must this person have done? In fact, maybe that's what they deserve. And so in the midst of this person's despair, he approaches Jesus. There's still something giving him hope. And he approaches Jesus and he gives a simple statement of faith. If you will, you can make me clean. His theology is rich enough to know if Jesus will, he can make him clean. He knows the truth. Jesus can deal with his worst situation. And the only question is, will he? And he poses that to Jesus. And we have to think, this is the pivotal moment. This is where his life has the opportunity to be transformed. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he, he could have continued to pass by, just totally ignored him. Have you ever think about that? That, that? Jesus walked past lots of other lepers, who didn't get healed. Jesus didn't come to heal people from leprosy. He came, and you see in the, the previous section, he came to preach. And so Jesus could have just easily walked past this man and that man's hopes are dashed in a second. 
Jesus could have looked at this man and used him as an, a, a teaching analogy to say, this is what sin is like. Sin is a disease that devours us from the inside out, that we are destroyed by self-inflicted sinful wounds. And this is what separates us from God and what separates us from other people. Leprosy and sin, apart from a miracle, will doom us. Jesus could have used it as a teaching analogy. But he doesn't. Jesus feels pity. He feels compassion. He looks the man in the eyes, touches him where no one else would have touched a leper, lest they become unclean themselves. Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. That's the climax of the story. When Jesus says, I will be clean to this man, immediately the leprosy leaves. Immediately the leprosy leaves. And that moment, everything changes for him physically, but the implications go beyond the physical, don't they? He's now able to go to the priest. He's able to go back to worship. He's able to go back to his family, back to his wife. He's able to watch his kids grow up. He's able to walk his daughter down the aisle. He's able to interact with his buddies and friends, able to have laughter and fun, able to work and drink and eat and dance. He's able to do all the things that he wasn't able to do beforehand. Jesus transforms not just the physical, but everything. And the way that I want to summarize it is just with three short facts. The story tells us that Jesus has the power to heal the worst wounds imaginable. Jesus healed a leper. Four words. It's simple. The story tells us that Jesus has the power to heal the worst wounds imaginable. The deeper story tells us that Jesus has the power to transform every facet of our lives. And we're not just thinking about the fact of what Jesus did, but what kind of implications it has. And I, I think that that's important for us to know, not just the story, but the deeper story, because it's interesting to see what this man does after Jesus charges him not to tell everybody. Jesus knows if word gets out that he's healed this leopard, their leper, that people might come to him. Crowds from everywhere would come to him. But they wouldn't be coming for him. They'd be coming for healing. And we see throughout Jesus' ministry, he often draws a crowd because they want healing. They want bread. They want miracles, but Jesus didn't come to give these physical things. He provides something deeper. But the reason I think that this man goes and look at verse 45, how does the, the, the scriptures dis, uh, describe how he's come? I think I've got it. I'll put it up on the screen. But the man went out and spread the word, proclaiming it to everyone what had happened. What was it? What was the it that he shared? What had happened? I think the, the story that this man told was probably more than, yeah, Jesus healed me. Meh, eh, yeah, Jesus healed me. That's not a story worth, well, it, it tells that Jesus has the power to heal the worst wounds imaginable, but I'm thinking that he told a deeper story. 
I think it's his desire to tell that story was rooted in an understanding and an appreciation for the magnitude and implications of what happened. I think this man went out and defied Jesus' orders because he was so overwhelmed. He understood and appreciated the deeper story. He understood the magnitude of what had just happened. And he saw the many manifold implications of what Jesus had done. And so he needed to. He was compelled to. He couldn't help. In his joy, he went and shared with others what was happening. Now, for us, I think that it's important to know both the story and the deeper story of what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to show a um, video. In this video, what I want you to do is see if you can tell what is the story of Lauren and what's the deeper story of Lauren. It's seven minutes long, uh, and see if you can identify the story and the deeper story. My name is Lindsay Landers. I'm 23 years old, and I'm from Friendswood, Texas. I don't think there was ever a moment in my life where I didn't feel different. I have scars that wrap from behind my right ear, up around it, and then across my cheek to my nose, and then it crosses down along my nose and along my mouth, and then it goes underneath my chin. I was born with a congenital melanocytic nevus. Most people would recognize this as a mole. Most people have them, actually. But mine was 13 centimeters, and it covered the entire right side of my face. My doctors didn't know what to do with me. They had never seen anything like this before. So the fear was that it would grow. And so there was this urgency as soon as I was born that this needed to be removed. So as soon as my parents knew that I was a baby with a complication, they immediately just started praying and seeking out people who they knew could help them. And Dr. Burns was creating this procedure called skin expansion. So they placed the port right underneath my ear, kind of in my neck. And for nine months every week, my parents would take me to my doctor and he would inject water into that spot. And slowly this water balloon like expanded in my neck. But the purpose of that water balloon was to stretch my skin. So it's that alternative to skin grafting. That surgery was a nine hour surgery. I had hundreds of stitches on my face. I just felt like my scars separated me from people and that until they really knew what happened to me, they couldn't really know me. Kids pointing and kids asking, other kids asking me questions was really routine. I remember one specific traumatic experience of having kind of an exchange with one of my guy friends at the time and just joking back and forth. And then the, the last joke that was made was that I looked like Two-Face. And that still sticks in my mind of being called that. 
because it was immediately like, do I really look that way? Is that really how people perceive me as a monster? It's so different that I look villainous. And I'm just a second grade kid, like, God, why did you make me look scary? Why, do, why am I scary? In those moments, it was just the feeling of being completely misunderstood. And when you feel misunderstood, you feel completely vulnerable and just sad. I felt like there was a certain standard of beauty that I couldn't live up to. The standard was no scars. The standard was symmetry. And symmetry was something I was never going to have. So when I first started wearing makeup, it was something that I thought a lot about. But there's really no amount of makeup that I could put on that would make my face look symmetrical. <laughs> Just wasn't happening. So that was kind of something I had to come to terms with, that makeup wasn't going to fix it. Since I didn't feel like people could know and understand me just by looking at me, I was constantly trying to compensate for it. Trying to find my identity and anything else so that people wouldn't know me as the girl with scars. I didn't want to be known for that. I have so many memories of just being tired, of feeling like I needed to perform well in order to be accepted by others and never really still feeling like I measured up. And so in that regard, I, I wondered how another person could love me. I wondered how another person could find me beautiful or attractive because I just didn't believe that for myself. And my parents always told me about this perfect God and this perfect Jesus who loved me. And I couldn't understand that. I never really understood why this perfect God would make me imperfect and how he could love me. God used the healing from my birthmark to reveal himself to me. I knew that I needed a savior just the way whenever I was a baby, I needed a physician. I needed a doctor. I knew that this black birthmark that I was born with, I couldn't remove myself the same way that my sin, I couldn't remove myself. I needed somebody to take this away. I needed somebody to take my wicked heart and make it clean. It was through knowing and understanding Jesus personally that I truly came to believe. I remember very vividly hearing a story for the first time of Jesus rising from the dead and showing his disciples his scars as evidence that he had conquered death and that he was Jesus the Messiah and he was who he says that he was. He used those scars to declare that he was God. And it kind of clicked with me that scars are evidence. They're evidence of God's miracles. I now, whenever I look in the mirror, I don't immediately see scars or something that 
is imperfect, I see God making me perfect. My scars tell the story of the beauty God sees in me. My scars tell my story. All right, so what is Lindsay's story? Well, there was a girl. She was born with a giant mole on her face, and the doctors performed a new kind of surgery to be able to remove the mole from her face. And then later on in life, she learned the truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners, and she believed it. That's the fact of the story. But the reason that I think is an emotional story, I think that the reason you might have welled up at tears at certain points in that is because you understand the deeper story of what was going on. You saw this wasn't just a girl who was struggling with physical scars. There was a deeper kind of wound that needed healing, yeah? She felt misunderstood and unknown. She felt that her scars kept her at a distance from other people that no one could get close to understand who she really was. And she tried everything that she could to be able to hide the scars and found that makeup didn't work. And that trying to improve herself and impress other people so that they might accept her was an exhausting effort until she finally gave in to seeing that her deepest need was not her face but her heart. And just like her heart or just like her face needed a doctor, her heart needed a savior. And what I love about this story is this. Jesus did not take her scars away. The good news in this story is not that somehow Jesus provided a reconstructive surgeon to repair her face and now her face is perfect. No, 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 no. The good news in this story is that Jesus saved her soul and that transformed everything. The good news is not that her circumstances are any better, but that her outlook because of the gospel is different. I love Lindsay's story. And what I think about people at Keystone, I think there are similars, similar stories like that. Here, In fact, I know 100% that there are stories of how Jesus has transformed people's lives at Keystone. I've heard them personally from you, or I've heard stories from the other pastors who've done counseling sessions. Those stories are a huge encouragement. They're a reminder for me that, yeah, that's right, there is a God in heaven. He still performs miracles, and he still is transforming lives. I also know that because when we invited Life Action to come in, they ended up telling us they received letters from people at Keystone who were overwhelmed by the ways that God had worked in their life during that week. But they also shared that there is a reluctance for Keystone people to share those stories. And I want Keystone to be a bunch of storytellers with full of stories like Lauren where we're able to tell of God's grace in our lives. Not only the, the story that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me, that's true and that's the story that we all rest in, but there is a deeper story that's probably more personal and unique to each individual person in here. Stories how he just didn't 
save us, but how he's continuing to shape us. And I know that at baptism, we all tell the story of our conversion of how Jesus saved us, but we should continually tell the stories of how God is shaping us. And so I want to move into a final section where I try to identify some next steps for us to take. And the first is this. First step. You have to go by, uh, manipulate it just with the uh, arrow back there. Oh, there it is. Perfect. First step. Identify the deeper story of how Jesus has transformed your life. Identify the deeper story of how Jesus has transformed your life. We know the story. What's your deeper story? And I think it's going to take work for us to uncover this. You might know your story in your head, but until you've been forced to articulate it, it just might be tangled thoughts in your own head. When I was in English class in high school, 20 years ago, I saw a quote on the wall from E.M. Furster. It said this, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? How do I know what I think until I see what I say? And this started a habit in me for, to write out everything that I do. All of those tangled thoughts that are up in my head, they somehow untangle themselves as I write. Now, if you've ever thought that I've sounded clear or articulate or if I told a good story, chances are the only reason that it sounds like that is because I've written it down once and probably rewritten it and probably told someone else about it so that when you're hearing it, you're not hearing the first time. You're hearing me go back over and over and over again a, a, a message that I've thought through and declared. That's why if you catch me like after the services, I'm far more uneasy and awkward talking to. It's because I didn't have time to write anything down. And so that's why I default to fishing and talking about my uncles because I, I don't, or my, my uh, nephews, because I just don't, I don't know what to say. Identify the deeper story of what it is. And I want to say it's going to take some work. One of the best ways might be for you to actually rehearse it with someone else. Rehearse your story with someone so that they can see that Jesus is the hero. And I say the word rehearse because it's going to take practice to do it well. We've all heard bad storytellers, yeah? You've heard people and, and when they're telling their story, there's, there's too much detail. And it's confusing. There's too little detail. It's out of sequence. It's repetitive. It's out of sequence. Like, people just aren't naturally good storytellers. And we, as conscientious, conservative, tight-lipped, Lancaster County, Swiss, German, Mennonite keystoners, don't want to, you know, tell a bad story. We'd prefer to just keep our mouths shut. But the only way that you're going to get good at telling your story is if you actually do it. And anything worth doing well is worth doing poorly at first. And so my encouragement for you is to start practicing telling your stories. I guarantee Lindsay's story was not done in one take. In fact, that video that we showed a few weeks back of the kids' ministry, we, we, we shot this kids' ministry video. It was five minutes long. And you think, oh, Brooke and Jenna and Izzy, they were so good. I mean, they just spoke so easily and clearly about the kids' ministry. I could never do anything like that. Well, if you only knew how many takes it took to get that 
and how many hours it took to say it, to reduce it down to five minutes and the kind of Hollywood movie magic that Shane did to parse that all together. The story looks refined and polished, but I guarantee that it didn't start off that way. My encouragement for us to be able to tell good stories is to rehearse it, as well as, lastly, encouraging someone to uncover their story of how the gospel is shaping his or her life. Encourage someone else to share their story. One of the things I loved about Life Action is when they were here, they ended a lot of their services with just a simple invitation. They said, before you go, tell three people something that God is working on you in your life. Tell three people what God is doing in your life right now. And I'm, sitting, I'm, I'm one of the church, and I'm thinking, oh, that's awkward. I, I don't want to do that. I don't have any time to write anything down. What, what am I possibly going to say? But here's the thing. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. And since everyone was doing it, I joined in. I, I, I limped along and told other people my story of what God was doing in my life as well as got to hear what God was doing in their life. And it was a mutually encouraging experience, pointing to the glory that God was doing in our lives. And so I would encourage you, I'll do it now for us, encourage you. You don't have to tell your story on this platform or on the screens in some big video. It might just mean that you end up telling your friends or your family, how's God shaping you right now? And not just how did God save you, but how is he shaping you right now? How is he transforming the way that you think about money? How is the gospel impacting right now the way that you think about the way that you use social media or the way that you spend your time or the way that you dress How is the gospel impacting the way that you relate to your spouse or to your boss? How is it changing the way that you parent your kids? These are stories not of salvation, but of shaping. And so maybe it's just with friends, family. Maybe it's in your care group that you can share the healing that's gone on and point to God's glory. I think that if we can, as a church, be a place where this kind of thing happens as a part of our culture, God's going to be glorified for the good things that he's done in our lives, and the church is going to be encouraged because we're reminded of God's powerful hand to transform all of life. Let me pray for us. And Father, we do exalt you as the powerful one, the one who rules and reigns over everyone and everything, Lord, you are the creator and the sustainer and our healer, our savior. Lord, we could bear witness all morning of the ways that you have opened our eyes to both our depravity, our deep need, and then met that hopeless situation with the hope of the gospel that in our place and for our sin, you sent a savior who is Christ the King. Lord, I pray that this story of our salvation would not grow boring or tired in our eyes, but that we might share that story of salvation. I also pray, Lord, that you would, because we know you are, 
shaping us to become more and more like Christ, that you would build us up to see and appreciate the magnitude and implications of what the good news of Jesus means for us today. And that you would move us to a place where we, with great joy, share others the kinds of ways that you have brought healing to our broken lives. Lord, in this next few moments, I pray that you would reveal those areas to us. Help us to remember where we were. That we might see the pivotal moment where you opened our eyes to the glory of the gospel. That in your mercy and discipline shifted our eyes away from what was subtly destroying us from the inside out and have pointed us onto a pathway to redemption, to healing, so that we might freely tell our stories, scars and all. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.